Well, let's get into Mark chapter 9 and back into our study of the Son of God and the Servant of Man. I think it'd be important for a moment just to kind of back the truck up a bit and show you kind of where we are in the large overview of the book, all right? Because we see the book in three acts. There is Christ serving his um, crowds, we'll call it, general population, his neighbors. And so he came on the scene and he traveled in that Galilean area. He kind of made a wide swath, a circle. And then as that time period ended, he really gathered with him his disciples and he began to teach them specifically. That's around the end of chapter 8, first of chapter 9. The transfiguration marks one of those moments in which he begins to focus in on his disciples. And he takes them with him on his way to Jerusalem, in which at that point he really serves his father's will. And so we see the book of Mark kind of in three acts. One in which the Son of God, who's the servant of man, is serving the crowds or serving his neighbors Then he's serving his brothers, and then he's serving his father. But all of this, of course, is wrapped in his posture of service to people. Now, this is especially noticeable as you get into chapter 9. Because he makes a marked, um, mark, I should say, makes a marked uh, point to indicate he's teaching his disciples And beginning at about verse 30, he's teaching them what I think is the core trait, the the, um, necessary ingredient, the real under the hood kind of look at what it means to be a disciple. In fact, look at Mark chapter 9, look about verse 31. This verse actually says, and Mark notes this, that he... He didn't want anyone to know that he was passing through Galilee because he was teaching his disciples. Do you see that? He's looking for concentrated, undistracted time to teach his disciples some very important things. This is what's occurring now. His attention is really focused on the, on the, on the disciples, getting them ready to continue his mission. And so what is it now? He says to these disciples in this undistracted, no crowd kind of moment. Well, beginning in verse 31, Mark 9, look with me. He says this to his disciples, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Doesn't sound like your most, uh, you know, um, welcome kind of motivating speech, does it? Hey guys, gather around. We're making our way to Jerusalem. Here's the, the first thing. I really want to make sure you understand that I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and for three days I'll rise. And the Bible says in verse 32 that they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So put yourself in their situation. that They're they're kind of scratching their head. What what does he mean? He's going up to Jerusalem. They're They're going to kill him, and then he's going to rise. But don't ask him. This sounds odd. I'm not sure I get it. I want to know, but I'm afraid to ask. So this is what's going on here. This is the tension of the moment. So they're, they're, they're in this traveling mode. And verse 33 says that they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, now right there, by the way, that's just a great marker for us. Indicating the, the omniscience of Jesus, which is a, 
a telling point to his divinity, his deity. He knew what they were thinking, what they were discussing, but he asked them anyway. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, this is startling. Because if you, just, if you want to be really transparent and frank here in this moment, they're arguing about who's the greatest on the heels of being told that their leader was going to go and die and be killed and delivered over. Now, maybe they're piecing together the fact that he's going to rise, but it, it almost seems like this is happening. Well, once he leaves, who's taking over? You kind of get that sense, maybe. Remember, they weren't sure they understood everything yet, so maybe there was the sense of the resurrection. Maybe they were thinking, well, well, maybe this is when the kingdom lands officially and, and we overtake Rome. Maybe they're thinking about it from a military or political point of view. But either way, on the heels of him saying, I'm going to go die, I'm going to go serve the Father's will and, and mankind's need, they're talking about who among them is going to be the greatest. And then he sat down and called the 12. And that's a very important phrase because in Jewish culture, this was a, a moment in which you're going to deliver some very important news. This isn't just passing information at this point. This isn't just incidental. This is a moment in which you kind of have the family talk. Hey, dad, you ever done that? You kind of gather your kids and everyone together and your wife says, hey, we need to have a little family meeting. Maybe moms, you've done that. In other words, it kind of raises the importance. It escalates the matter. That's what's happening here. So he's away from the crowds. He's undistracted. He says to them, I'm going to go up and I'm going to die, be delivered in the hands of men, and then I'm going to rise. They can't grasp it. They're arguing, but they're afraid to ask. And they wonder who's next. And he says, guys... In light of what I've told you, in light of your response, I think it's important we kind of gather together and make sure we are clear on what I'm saying to you. And then he says this, verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, we see the theme of Mark's writing just really surfacing, don't we? Here Christ is son of God and yet servant of man. I think within verse 35, we really have the, the nut graph, the core, the, the, the main ingredient to what it means to follow Christ. He's saying this, if you want to follow me, guys, if, if you're going to make your way to Jerusalem with me, if you really want to, and I'll use this phrase, kind of continue on after I'm gone, then here's got to be your overall attitude if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You must have a cruciform type of mentality. The culture you must embrace must be one not where you grab power to feed self, but one where you utilize appropriate power to serve others. In a word, this is called humility. And I would contend with you today that the DNA of discipleship the singular item that every follower of Christ must have, must develop, must embrace. The singular uh, item, the chain, so to speak, upon which every action and attitude is built is the essential core ingredient, the trait of humility. We must be willing to be last of all and servant of all. And nobody naturally thinks this way, okay? I don't, you don't, 
we don't think about power to serve others. We typically think about power to feed ourselves. But Christ here is saying, guys, don't ask who's going to be the greatest. Here's how you must follow me. You must be willing to be last of all and servant of all. And he's referencing, of course, his journey now to go up and be the sacrifice for our sins, to, to be delivered to the hands of men, verse 31 says, to be killed and then to be raised. So he's utilizing his God-given mission and power for the good of others, no doubt. So we're not denying there's power here. Christ is on a mission. He's focused. But he's utilizing his power not for himself. He's utilizing the mission, the power for the good of others. And this is what he's saying to them in verse 35. That humility must be a, a primary, if not the core ingredient of all who follow Christ. And so I just kind of word it like this for you. This is simply the take-home truth. It's kind of the, the real nut graph of his conversation here that they were afraid to talk about. That humility is the DNA of a disciple of Christ. And it forms the chain of every attitude and action that's displayed. Now, if you need some further proof of this, will you flip to the left a little bit? Look at Matthew 18 just for a second. Let me show you how Christ, according to Matthew... Uses this, uses this very word in this same conversation. Go left to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 18. Here's Matthew's recording of the same account. And so it's the same situations, different perspective. Look what Matthew says about this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called to him a child and put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn... And become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, say it with me, church, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew actually records Christ using that word. And so it is not a stretch for us to say that when Christ is really leaning into his disciples about what it takes to follow him, what it means to be a disciple, a learner, the first, I would say foremost, the core, the necessary ingredient is humility. Now, before we dive into the rest of these verses, which I think are an elaboration on humility. Because when you read the, the remainder of chapter 9, you kind of get the sense like they're just kind of random things happening. This happens, that happens, he says this, he says that, you're not quite sure how to piece it together. But if you really link it all... To the beginning of this conversation, when he sits down, he calls them to him and says, Guys, you got to know something. You got to be servant of all, last of all. Humility is, is key. Then most of it begins to kind of make sense. So let's understand, first of all, a few facts about humility. Let me give you a definition, okay? Because there's, there's various ones, and they're, they're, they're not bad. The different ones aren't bad. Um, some have said it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's a good one. There's been other ones, but I, I like this definition here in light of the text. You'll see it kind of fit together. And in light of the fact that I think the etymology of the word humility is, is from the word low. This is what the word actually means in its purest, rudest form. It means to take the low road or to take the low posture. And so I would say a good definition of humility is this right here. 
It's the noble choice to forego your status and deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. I like this because it, it fits the text well because Christ is saying to the disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed, delivered to the hands of men. I'm doing this. I'm foregoing status. I'm deploying my resources. I'm on mission, but not just to, to grab power to feed self. I'm doing that to serve others. And this is true humility. You'll see this in your small group curriculum for this week, but there's a few books that have been helpful, I think, in understanding aspects of humility because this is a hard thing to talk about because nobody really owns it. Are you with me? I mean, the first person that says to you, yeah, I've kind of got this one down pat, they don't have it down pat, all right? So I'm struggling in this area. More than likely, all of us are. And so we have to think about how do you talk about humility when you know you lack it? How do you, how do you kind of bring it to the forefront of your sheep when, when we're all trying to seek it and know that it's not natural and it's hard? Some books have been helpful to me, and these won't be on the screen or anything, but I'll just give you the titles. You'll see them in your curriculum. But um, Andrew Murray, an old author, has written one on humility. Um, C.J. Mahaney's got one on humility. Uh, Tim Keller has one called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, uh, one I just read this week, in fact, I picked it up off the shelf. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Maybe it was Thursday, but... I was scanning my, book, my library for, for a book on humility, and, and I saw this one that Russ Matthews gave me, I think, five years ago, and I had hardly opened it. So I picked it off. It's called Humilitas, and I kind of peeled back the binder. It's kind of stiff. Anyway, I just couldn't put it down until I finished it. It's not a really long book, but a tremendously helpful book called Humilitas by John Dixon. So there's several books that will help you with this, and I think they lean into this same definition, that humility is the willingness just to take the low posture. To serve others. This is what Christ did. It does not mean. Watch this church. It does not mean. That there isn't power involved. But it's the right use of power. Not to feed self. But to serve others. This is exactly what Jesus did. And so as he begins. And continues this conversation with the disciples. I think what happens next is really. A good bit of elaboration. On this concept. This topic. This essential trait of humility. What I say is the DNA of a true disciple. Look what he says in verse 36. I'm going to just give you three things I think he says about humility. In verse 36, he says this. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I think he says first about humility that a person who's humble or someone with humility serves others without expectation. And he uses this example of receiving a child. Now, notice something here. I want you to follow me here. Let's just look at the text and let it speak to us for what it says. Matthew does record that we should be like a child. But in Mark's account, Mark tries to make the point that we should be like the one receiving the child. Do you see that? He really doesn't say in Mark's account, be like the child, does he? Let's read it again. Whoever, verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name. So the focus of the action, at least in Mark's account, is on how you receive someone, right? And often we read this and we just kind of assume, well, he meant to be like a child. That's not what he says in this verse. In this verse, he says, be like the one who's receiving the child. In fact, the word receives mentioned four times. Now, in Jewish culture and in some of these um, other cultures that were 
kind of, kind of cosmopolitan in this historical time, children were considered often when they would interrupt you or they would be around, they were considered kind of a waste of an interaction. Like, who wants to give a kid the time? We've got more important things to do. And here's why. Because they didn't think that a child, an interaction with a child, a momentary conversation or this kind of uh, relationship could really profit them anything. In other words, there's nothing to gain from receiving a child. All you're going to do is want. You're going to take. Now, before you condemn that, you've thought that as well. <laughs> Especially if you've had a newborn. A one-year-old, a three-year-old, maybe a 12-year-old. We'll just go, we'll leave it there, right? There are times as a parent you've thought, man, all this kid does is take. But your better nature is kicked in, hopefully your spiritual nature, and you realize this is a process. And You see what they're saying is here, you know, when a, when a child would have run up to the Lord, hey, don't bother the master. Remember that moment? And Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. You see, here's what Christ is saying. You can spot humility in someone by how they treat people with whom they stand to gain nothing. In our culture, we often run to those from whom we can gain something, right? In our minds, we're playing out the situation. Well, this could happen and that could happen. I think the professional word is called networking. Is that what they call it these days? And I'm not knocking that. I'm just trying to paint a picture here. That Jesus here says, you can spot a humble person by how they treat people, especially when it's someone from whom they can really gain nothing. It's kind of, kind of convicting, isn't it? It kind of makes you realize, well, I'm just not as humble as maybe I thought I was. Because sometimes we're all adding up the scores in places, aren't we? We're trying to figure out the equations. You know, James spoke to this. James 2. He was confronting the first century church. And he said to its leaders, you know, you watch who comes into your church. And someone comes in who's got a fine robe. And they look like they could, could really be a, an important player in your, in your company. They could be a big-time person in your church, and so you make sure they get the front row. You speak to them. But someone else comes in, and they're not dressed in the way you think they should be. They don't know if they can really give you anything, and so you just put them in the back corner. And James says this ought not to be. In other words, let's, let's be done with favorites. Now, what I think is even more striking is in this verse, it says that if you receive one such child in my name... It's like receiving me. And then he moves it up a step. He says, it's not just receiving me. He says, it's like you're receiving the one who sent me. When you receive a child who, who stands to benefit you to, to no degree, but when you take a knee and you get on their level and you just give them time and you welcome them and you're just as equal in your treatment of them as you are with, with some adult who you think could really benefit your situation, it's like you're receiving the king of kings. That's the attitude of a humble person. You look at receiving a child as important as receiving the president. You don't make distinctions. That's, that's incredible, isn't it? And so he's saying here, humble people, they serve others without expectation. 
They just welcome those. They have an open-armed posture. I mean, this really goes again to one thing we've been saying lately in our small groups. Let's retain an open-armed posture. I've loved hearing lately how many of our groups that are pretty large are really talking seriously about multiplication. And uh, I know I shouldn't use the word dividing or splitting, but in this case, it's good. How can we extend our groups so that there's room for others, so that we're making a larger impact? And those with smaller groups, man, they're, they're staying wide open. No group closed. No one's saying, well, you can't come in here. And here's another way to say, wow, this is why, because we don't want to hold distinctions. You can and you can't. No, we want to treat all people with respect and dignity. It's a sign of humility. So the first thing he says about humility is that it is an attitude in which we serve others without expectation. He then goes on in verse 38, and Mark relays to us an encounter in which some were saying to Jesus that they saw someone casting out demons in your name. In fact, John said this. And so John says, we tried to stop him. Notice the number of times the pronoun we is used here. I think this is kind of humorous. Verse 38, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> Who's the centerpiece of that conversation? John and his friends, right? It's almost like there's the opposite of Christ's words earlier. In other words, it's a, it's a, um, we want to make sure we eliminate those who might be a threat against us. We're trying to retain power for self. It's not using power rightly for the good of others. Jesus says to him in verse 39, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon to speak evil of me. In other words, if they're doing a good work in my name, soon they'll see that I am the risen Christ, the Lord of all. They won't speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, of course, the key thing here is the phrase, in my name. And I'd remind you, just to bring back some previous Mark and scriptures, this is what the scribes and Pharisees could not do. Do you remember who they said Christ was using his power? Uh, whose, whose source was Christ's power? It was the devil. Remember that? Beelzebub. So they were saying Christ was not exercising power in his name. They were saying you're exercising power in the devil's name. So Christ here is not saying just everybody's in. He's saying if in my name, by my spirit, they're doing works and they're following me. They're not your enemy. In fact, he then takes us to a really low common denominator. Watch this, verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink. That's like the, the lowest, and I'll even use the word easiest. The first thing to do when you see a stranger, you just offer him some, some immediate nourishment. Can I get you something to drink? That's like the first thing you say when someone comes to your house, right? Can I offer you some water, some coffee, some tea, some... Right, you just kind of that's the first thing you do. He says, even the very first, the easiest, the, the, the lowest common denominator of things you do for people, if they do that to you because you belong to Christ, that person will by no means lose his reward. Isn't that great? In other words, John, you're not in competition with those who, in my name, are doing my work, even if it's different than what you're doing. And so humility says this, we seek unity 
We promote unity, not competition. Another sign of a humble person. I'm not trying to find the, the, the quickest battle, the nearest fight, in order to be right. I'm not trying to pick apart every single person that in Christ's name is doing the right thing. So Jesus here really puts an end to, to a competitive mindset. Now I think that's difficult in our culture. Are you competitive? Most of you should not like this. I know I am. Uh, my wife is. In black, black, most of you don't know this. My wife's more competitive than me. Now, she's much more quiet than me, but playing sequence or sometimes a board game at home or just when our kids were little, you know, she's quite competitive. And we don't want that spirit to bleed over into the church or into our Christian walk to where we think we're at odds or in battle or in competition with those who actually own our team. Humble people, they realize that they want to travel on Unity Avenue, not competition corridor. Now you may ask yourself, where do I, where do I spot competitiveness? Where do you, can you spot divisiveness? How can you tell if someone's really promoting unity instead of competition? I think the first observation window is in how we speak. Do you know that? I think this goes to us individually. If you broaden that circle out, I think it goes to us church-wide. I think it goes even to the big C church. It's, you can tell someone who's humble by how they speak about others who are involved in the same thing they're doing. And especially if the other people are doing it better, you can tell how they, they speak about them, if they're humble or not. And what I found is this. Often, people who, who aren't humble, who aren't seeking humility... They try to raise themselves up by lowering others. You've heard that before. It's not, a, it's not an uncommon observation. I say that they uh, do a Galatians 5.15. In fact, here's what Galatians 5.15 says. Listen to this convicting verse that Paul wrote to Christians in this region. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but... But through love, serve one another. Here's the idea of serving, right? So you have this love and this freedom. In other words, this power to do what you want to do in Christ. Use that power, that freedom to serve other people. This is how you fulfill the whole law, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not eventually consumed by one another. So the warning here is that as you are free to serve others... In the power of Christ, that as you're doing that, you don't pick people apart because they're not doing it just like you. I hear this sometimes in the individual world with you know, different choices people have, whether it's school choice, food choice, even church choice, uh, different habits. Uh, and sometimes... The appearance can be that, well, my choice is better. And so it almost appears that we're in competition with one another. We're not in competition with each other in areas of preference and freedom and secondary matters. Amen, church? You are not your neighbor's enemy. And a homeschool person can sit beside a public school person who can sit beside a Christian school person. Someone who eats fried foods can sit beside someone who's what is it, cage-free and range something? I don't know all the terms, all right? 
We can. Different kinds of eggs, different kinds of Bible translations, different, even certain kinds of habits when it comes to exercise and those kinds of things. But those are all secondary matters. God forbid that we should have a pecking order of our spirituality based on those matters. That's competitiveness that's creeping in and killing the church. And the same thing sometimes bleeds out on how we view other churches. And sometimes we rank churches based on how well they, they do certain things horizontally. I, I've been thinking this week, how many of us sometimes have a horizontal view of churches in our area? Well, they do this well, and they do that well, and they do this well, and so we kind of rank them. Well, we should go here or here because of how they meet my needs. Here's how you should rank a church, if you should at all. But if you're going to talk about churches effectiveness, our job is to lift up Christ and paint a picture of Jesus. Church's role is, 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 hor- is, is vertical. We're pointers to Christ. And every week we should be exalting Jesus in all of his beauty and splendor, magnificence and holy. He should be the priceless treasure that every week we gather and we fix our eyes on him. We shouldn't have a scorecard out. Well, they did children's work pretty good. I give them a seven. But the one down the street, man, they had a six. This guy had a two. He preached okay. Give him a three. They really preached well. Give him a nine. Their greeters and their music. Man. Does anyone else feel uncomfortable with that whole conversation sometimes? When it's all horizontal? I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue excellence for God's glory. But it is to bring weight to God's character. Again, it's power to serve others, not to feed self. This is one of the reasons that our celebrity culture in Christendom is so dysfunctional. It's so unhealthy. We've lifted up people and the ways they do certain things and what we've seen on the horizontal level, their growth, or we've magnified them. We should be thankful that in small towns, there are faithful pastors who are lifting up Christ. And in big cities, there are faithful pastors who are lifting up Christ. The role and job of the church is to lift up Jesus. So I just want to ask you, let's be done with competition. Amen? And maybe you're saying, Todd, what's, what's the first step I could take if I really wanted to take you seriously? Here's what I'd say to you. Refuse to criticize. Refuse to criticize. And let's just put the cards on the table if we can use that analogy for a minute. Opportunities to criticize, to gossip, to lower someone else so you look better, they exist every day in your life and my life. And it takes a lot of character in the moment to say, you know what? I want to find the good and rejoice and resist the urge to criticize. I'm not going to see them as someone who's stopping us. I want to thank God that they're following him. And this is assuming they're in his name. I'm kind of making that assumption. It really goes to what Paul said in Philippians. He said, you know what? I'm just glad there are folks preaching the gospel. He even said this. Some are doing it for wrong motives. He admitted that. But he said, in the end, at least they're preaching the gospel. Paul had a very non-competitive and yet passionate mindset. That's what we're after. 
is passion without the competition. See, competition is called selfish ambition. And Paul said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. But he never said ambition was a bad thing, right? He qualified it. What's the negative thing? The selfish ambition. Trying to utilize power for self. But we should have ambition. We should have passion for God's name and God's glory and the church's health. And so we, we embrace a, a unifying attitude, a mindset where we're just not going to criticize. And if we have an issue, we're going to go to that person face to face. We're not going to work a system, try to sabotage, undermine. We're going to speak face to face, plainly, kindly. We're not going to compete. Whether it's individually, whether it's in our city, or even just in the big seat church universally. The third thing he says about humility is between verses 42 and 50. And I'll tell you, these are the hardest verses to understand. In fact, even now I'm praying in my mind, God, help me to relay this well because they're, they're difficult. Can I just be transparent with you? These are hard verses. I'll read through them with you. You'll, be, you'll think, yeah, this is kind of odd. What does he mean by that? Well, he begins saying in verse 42 that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I mean, wow, what an analogy. Now, I think he's drawing again on the little one that he probably set in the midst back in verse 37, the, the, the child, right? There are some who think perhaps he means by little one a young disciple. Jury's out, I don't know. It seems to me the context would say he's still thinking about the child. Wouldn't you probably agree with that? He set a child in their midst. He's talking about humility, how important it is just to have a, a non-competitive, no-expectation mindset as we serve people. And then he says this with that same thought that, that if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It's better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In other words, whatever you do as you serve others, do not cause one who believes in me to sin. Wow. Now, the word to sin there is the word scandalize. So I'm going to try to define for you what I think he's saying here. I think he's saying that those who serve others, if they call someone to disbelieve, he's not saying lose your salvation. He's not saying that they could be in and they're not in, but he is using phrases like who believe in me. In other words, one who, who, who's considered like part of the fold. There's one who's a Christian, at least from what we know and what they say. And yet, watch this, if you cause one of these to stumble, to trip, if you cause one of these to to no longer believe. Man, that's... And I think the sense of the phrase is it's um, almost like unforgivable. It's, it's, it's beyond repair. Don't do it, he says. But then he goes to verse 43 and he says, if your hand causes you to sin, suddenly he moves from causing other little ones to sin to things that would cause you to sin. He mentions three things. Your hand, your foot, and your eye. Do you see that? What you do, where you go, and what you see. Which in that culture typically comprised the entire being of someone. He says if any part of 
those things. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go to eternal life uh, crippled. Excuse me, it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. Same thing with your feet and same thing with your eye. It's better to tear it out, he says. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. What's he saying here? These are hard verses. I, I think first he's saying this, that humble people are keenly sensitive. Watch this. Not just to others, but I would say they're even more keenly sensitive and aware of their own faults. They're willing to look in the mirror first before they look out the window. In both cases, they're keenly sensitive. We don't want to offend at all. But we're going to start with ourselves and, and, and we're going to have long-term perspective. It is far better to have short-term pain in this life, one eye, one foot, one hand, than to have short-term gain in this life and have long-term pain in the next. In other words, they're just aware. They're, they're sensitive. They, they understand that there's something going on in God's kingdom that demands a, a high alertness and awareness to the danger of sin. And so we don't want to offend even a little one and cause them not to believe, nor do we want to do anything to ourselves that would cause us to stumble and trip. So I think this is one of the ways to see verses 42 through about verse 48. Verse 49 begins even more difficult phrases. Look with me. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, I don't know what that means probably. Okay? Could you say, well, that's a, that's a tough phrase in the Bible. What's he saying there? Then he kind of says salt is good. So you read in verse 49 like salt with a fire. That doesn't sound good, but he says salt is good. So your mind is spinning right now, isn't it? Like, man, what's going on here? Salt is good, but the salt has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Like, I like salt, by the way. I salt everything I eat. That's not what he means here, okay? So a lot about salt here after this idea of offending little ones and offending yourself. And just like, what's going on here? He says, have salt in yourselves, be at peace with one another. I think as he gets into about verse 49, he's talking about being keenly distinctive. All right? In other words, the idea of salt. And I think verse 49, when he says, everyone will be salted with fire, he just means there is a judgment coming for everyone. And so it's better that if, if you can do that judgment in advance, like notice like, wow, this sin's going to take me to hell. I should get rid of that. And you fall on the Lord's grace and mercy. And, and you're kind of judging yourself, as Paul would say in Corinthians. And you're not allowing yourself to be an offending stumbling block to little ones. In other words, you're taking the measures of self-examination first. But make no mistake, everybody gets examined at some point, is what he's saying. With fire. Now, there is some reference here, possibly, to Old Testament sacrifices. In which they were often um, consumed in a fire. So maybe Mark is alluding to the fact that as a disciple, we are a sacrificial offering that's consumed with fire. Again, I'm giving you options, okay? Here's why these statements and these verses can be difficult because most scholars and commentators agree that Mark probably heard Christ say this and other things like this at different times. But as he went to write, a synopsis of Christ's teaching to the disciples, he just strung them together in one paragraph. Does that make sense? 
It's not that it's not inspired. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It's not accurate. But it wasn't like this perhaps was all said at one time. It may have been various conversations. And he's pulling out the highlights. And so he's writing them down. So sometimes it looks like, the, how does that fit here? And how does that fit there? He's saying that true disciples are humble. And humble people are keenly sensitive. And watch this. I think keenly distinctive. You're okay embracing your saltiness. Like you look at yourself with a pretty hard microscope, a magnifying glass. You're willing to put yourself under the lens of that. Because you know that there is a high price to pay for following Christ. It's a high duty. It's a high expectation. You want to be salty. You want to be distinct. You're not just trying to fit in. There's, a, there, there's a, a certain kind of character trait about those who follow Christ, who take up their cross and follow him. In a cruciform culture, not everyone fits. Not everyone just says, yeah, I'll go and die. I'll give it away for the sake of others. Sure, count me in. That's just not the crowd's uh, typical call. But he's saying disciples are willing to rise at this call to, to use his power to serve others is one in which you have to be keenly sensitive to others and yourself and keenly distinctive. And I like this last phrase. Have salt in yourselves and yet be at peace with one another. And what were they doing when this whole conversation started? Do you remember? They were arguing with each other, weren't they? Remember? About who would be what? The greatest! And Christ says, guys, I'm turning the tables on you. This is a counterculture, counterintuitive lifestyle. You've got to be willing to be incredibly distinct, salty, a preserving factor and yet a, a, a thirsty kind of factor. At the same time, you can't do this in a way that's going to be divisive. I need you to be at peace with yourselves. I think he kind of called them on the carpet. Like, you want to be distinct. You want to be the greatest for all the wrong reasons. I'm calling you to utilize the power that I'm going to give you at Pentecost for all the right reasons to serve others. Give your life away. Walk to Calvary with me. Embrace the cross with me. Be that disciple. Be that distinct. That truly is what makes someone great, isn't it? When they're not worried about their name, but they're focused on his name and and they'll give their life away for his name. And so these are three, I don't want to say extrapolations, but I would say elaborations on humility. Read them with me. Number one, that we serve others without expectation. Number two, that we promote unity, not competition. Number three, we examine self without exception. Nothing goes... Uh, nothing gets a pass from the microscope. We start with the mirror before we go to the window. You see, this is really what humility looks like. At least three things it looks like in someone's life. Comes back to our take-home truth, doesn't it? That, that what is the singular bedrock of a disciple of Christ? I contend with you today, it is humility. 
and that there is no disciple of Christ who isn't chasing hard after humility. To be done with competition, criticism, gossip, divisiveness, self-exaltation. In other words, we must really embrace and pursue humility. So will you read with me kind of our take-home truth? Humility is the DNA of a disciple of Christ. And it forms the chain of every attitude and action displayed. In fact, I believe humility is the basis for everything that we do and a lack of it for the things that we do that we shouldn't do. Either we're thinking of ourselves and how we can feed ourselves with our own power or we're thinking of others and how we can use Christ's power to serve them. It's one of the two. I don't have this down pat. I fight this, okay? I think you probably do too. And we are born in sin. And we're tempted daily with what we see around us, which is the wrong use of power in so many venues, politically and other ways. Man, we are tempted to say, well, if I could just do that or do that, I would have that. And we forget the call of Christ is to take up our cross and follow him. Only humble people would do that. Now, hearing that, I need you to know, you don't have the power to do this. You can't leave here today and say, man, that was a great motivational talk on humility. I'm going to be humble. And then come back next week, Todd, man, I'm, I killed it this week. I was like humble like you wouldn't believe, dude. Like, that's not what's going to happen, okay? You won't be able to do that. That's not how humility works. It's not naturally produced. So what do we do? We leave here with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we allow the ultimate personification of humility to work in us, to flatten us, to bring us low, to cause us to take the escalator down. We allow the beautiful, perfect life of Jesus to have such weight on us that when we look at him, we realize, wow, we're so far away. Only by God's grace would he reconcile me and save me. That's how humility is birth. It's from Jesus into us as we look at him. In fact, let me just prove this to you as we close. Philippians chapter 2. The prima donna passage on humility. And it's not mentioning your name or my name. Whose name's in it? Christ's name. Verse 5. Listen to this with prayerfulness and a posture of, of letting the authority of God's word just kind of bend you over for a bit. The Holy Spirit said through Paul, Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you don't get this mindset walking out here with a, with a really big white knuckle fist. Like, I got this, Todd. See you next week. A little more humble than today. I'm on it, man. That's not happening. But you'll, you'll find humility gradually blanketing you. As you have Christ's mind. As you're in Christ. And look what it says. Who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, say it with me, church, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what the disciples couldn't grasp, but this is exactly what Christ was pointing to. Guys, I'm going to Calvary. That's why I came. And I have the power to do that. But I'm not doing it to feed myself. I'm doing it to serve others. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he asked those 12 guys, will you follow in my footsteps? Will you take up your cross and follow me? Following Christ is a call to pursuing humility. No competition. No expectation. Self-examination. That's the road of a true disciple. It's the road Christ walked. Let's fix our eyes on him. And as we do, his humility will be birthed in us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.